Well, it's like homecoming uh, today. We've got people from all over the place back. And in, in the first service, the Fullers were back from Asia, and they are boomeranging back out to Sweden. So um, it's, it's grand to have you guys. So, so good to have you all back. Um, we are part of a coalition of churches that sends people like this all over the globe to tell people the good news of the love of Christ for them. That uh, strange and wonderful collection of people is known as the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, that group gathers once a year. Um, this year it's in Nashville, later this month. And on occasion, it can get a little testy, right? And um, people in the know tell me that this year, perhaps especially that gathering, might get a little testy. And just, just to be honest with you, Jesus is grieved when that happens, when we, when we don't show the mark of a Christian towards one another, which is love, and instead we're, we are biting and devouring one another. And so uh, mindful of that and mindful that that's always a pressure on our church that we should yield to divisiveness, not, not unity. Tonight at 6 o'clock in Building 2, just across the way, we're going to be gathering to pray for the unity of our church and the unity of our sister churches that are part of the, the gathering that we are, the Southern Baptist Convention. So I hope you'll join us. It's important to Jesus. So I hope at 6 o'clock you'll come join us. 4.30 in the same place, Building 2, just prior to that, uh, we have an, an, another gathering. Because some of the good, important questions and comments and concerns that are being raised that have the potential to be kind of divisive are involving Southeastern Seminary. And even some accusations are being made online. You, maybe you've read some of those things and wonder if they're true, if they have merit, if they should be concerns of our church. A handful of our professors that call North Wake home are making themselves available at 4.30. We'll have some black and white coffee and you can have coffee with a prof and sit down and just get to know some of these men and women and ask them questions that are on your mind. We still have some room available around those tables. So if, if this is important to you and you have some questions, come. It'll be a great, a great time just to have a, a good, cordial, uh, caring interaction around some really important issues at 4.30 today, followed by prayer at 6. So I hope you can, hope you can join us. Um, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. Uh, that's where we are today. We are in, we're in the fun part of the book of Daniel where there's all kinds of wild dreams and visions and uh, it's an extraordinary one we look at today because it is, it, is a, it is a dream that was given as future, has been fulfilled as past for our encouragement. So it's quite extraordinary, and we'll look at it together. But to help us kind of get ready to think about it, there's an article that was written a number of years ago in Futurist magazine, and they listed <clears throat> some of the worst predictions of all time. I thought I'd share those with you as we think about prophecy and predictions this is from Roman engineer Julius Sextus Frontinius in AD 100. Inventions have long since reached their limit, and I see no hope for further developments. Um, law will be simplified over the next century. Lawyers will have diminished, and their fees will have been vastly curtailed. Um, and of course, that came true. Uh, journalist Junius Henry Brown. It doesn't matter what he does. He will never amount to anything. Albert Einstein's teacher to Einstein's father. It would appear we have reached the limits of what it 
it is possible to achieve with computer technology, and that by scientist John Van Neumann in 1949. Nuclear-powered vacuum cleaners will probably be a reality within 10 years, said the president of the White Vacuum Cleaner Company back in 1955. You all do have a nuclear-powered vacuum cleaner, I trust. And lastly, I predict the internet will go spectacularly supernova and in 1996 catastrophically collapse um, in InfoWorld magazine. You know, predicting the future with any kind of accuracy is almost impossible even for people who have expertise in their field, right? But what if you could? What if you could know the future? How would that affect you? How would that affect your choices? How would that affect your investments, your career choices, your health choices? I mean, if you knew what was coming down the pike with certainty, um, you'd have a lot less worries, wouldn't you? You'd at least know what was coming, and if it was bad news, you'd be as prepared as prepared could be for that news. Um, and that is, I think, the purpose of the vision that's given to Daniel in chapter 8 and the other visions that remain ahead of us in, in Dan, the book of Daniel. It's exactly that, right? Because we're going to see God's remarkable knowledge of events that are yet future when this prophecy is given so that his people will remain steadfast when things are not as they wish they were in the world, which is like all the time, right? So we have a chance to be strengthened in our faith and realign our hope today in God. So Daniel chapter 8, let me pray briefly. We'll open up this kind of complicated portion of Scripture and look at it together. Lord, have mercy on us. By your Spirit, bring the Word to us in a way that strengthens our hope in you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, let's start in verse 1. Get the setting for the vision. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. So the vision is given to Daniel. After just a couple of years after the vision that was given to him in chapter 7, right? And now we're probably a decade or so before the events of chapter 5, where um, King Belshazzar sees the handwriting on the wall literally, right? So we're, we're just before that. Daniel's transported to the city called Susa. It is outside of the Babylonian Empire. It is the place where the next empire of Persia, their kings will build their palaces. So it is a foreboding location in light of what Daniel is going to see there in that city. Let's listen to the vision together and then we'll look at the interpretation that's given to us in chapter 8. Start in verse 3. <clears throat> Daniel says, I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, 
and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, he came. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So, step out of it for just a minute. We have here a vision of two farm animals, right? Farmageddon. Uh, it's what, what we're talking about here. We have a ram, we have a goat. And if you remember from the previous version, the symbolism of beasts often relates to empires in the book of Daniel, at least in the previous vision. And the horns on the beasts represent kings or rulers of, of, of some sort. So here we have two successive kingdoms, the first of which has two horns, two kings, right? Look at verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. So the second empire tramples the first empire that had two kings. Now this second empire has a king who gets broken off. The first horn gets broken off. He's replaced by... Four kings or four rulers. And then most significantly for Daniel, a little king, a little horn comes up. And it, this, this empire extends to the glorious land, which is a reference probably to Israel. Right? And likely the oppression that this regime has over Israel. Verse 10, this horn grew great. This little horn, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, from the prince, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth on the ground, and it will act and prosper. So... Likely here when he talks about this heavenly activity, it's symbolic of a number of things possibly, but it probably includes God's people, okay? Um, and without, even without interpretation, we can tell that this does not look good for them, right? God's people are going to suffer at the hands of this king that, who rebels against God with great transgression and a rejection of truth. But in the next two verses that end the version, Daniel gets a little interpretive help from an angelic being. Look at verse 13. I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So even the angels here, these angelic beings, seem concerned 
about the severity and length of time of suffering. Um, because one of, the, one of the holy ones here, one of these angelic beings, says, how long is this suffering going to go on amongst your people? And the answer is both precise and a bit mysterious. 2,300 <clears throat> excuse me, evenings and mornings. Verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face, but he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So even Daniel, who's uniquely gifted in understanding dreams and visions, doesn't understand what he's seen, right? You remember I mentioned last week, uh, verse 27, that it says, I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And that's after the angel showed up and interpreted it for him. So we've got our hands full here. The angel who interprets for Daniel is given a name, Gabriel. And if you remember the story of the birth of Christ, you know that there's an angel that shows up and announces Jesus' birth to Mary and to Joseph. And that angel is also named Gabriel, possibly the same angel. Okay. Look at verse 18. When he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. So twice now Daniel's been said, this, this has to do with the end, the time of the end. Now, we tend to think from our vantage point, well, that must be about the end of the world. That must be the end when Jesus comes back. That's not from their perspective what's going on here. He's talking about the end of the suffering that's being predicted that will happen to the people, those 2,300 mornings and evenings, right? Look at verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. So, this makes my job a lot easier. He tells us exactly who, the, who these animals represent, right? Um, Gabriel tells Daniel that the ram is the Medo-Persian empire that's going to follow Babylon, and the goat is Greece that's going to come after that, okay? So, if you remember, there was a statue in chapter 2 of four different metals, that represented four different kingdoms. And then in chapter 7, there were four animals that corresponded to that image of the statue. And often, this is the most likely association of those kingdoms. Babylon is first, then Persia or Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then lastly, something Romish. Right? Now, Daniel's vision in chapter 8 is focusing on those middle two kingdoms. Right? The angel told us this is about Medo-Persia, and it's about Greece. Um, now remember, this is all future when it's given to Daniel. Um, some of it's as far as four or 500 years in the future. He's being told on the chessboard of history what nations are going to come into play. Imagine the guys at Fox News or CNN 
predicting who's going to win elections, 400, who's going to be in power 400 years in the future. Who are the world powers going to be? They can't even tell you who's going to win an election now, right? So um, this is a remarkable prediction of what was for Daniel, future prophecy. Okay? And our, we can look back in history and say it happened. It unfolded just like that. This prophecy is taking place sometime around 550 BC. The Greek Empire, he's predicting, won't come into power until the mid-300s, 200 years later. And he's picking it out and saying, this is going to be Greece. And the detail of the prophecy is going to far exceed predictions about just mere nationhood. Look at verse 22. As for the horn that was broken, okay, on, on Greece's nose there the, the goat's nose uh, in place of which four others arose four kingdoms shall arise from his nation but not with his power so he's saying that within greece there's going to be one king rise up and then four rulers after that right he's picking this out 200 years in the future and historians tell us that the broken horn is likely has really remarkable correspondence to alexander the great Alexander the Great, historians say, achieved unprecedented domination from Italy to India in unbelievable time, but he died suddenly at age 33 in 323 B.C., um, 225 years after this prophecy is written. He left behind two young sons. These boys were ultimately murdered, and the world was carved up between Alexander's powerful generals. Anybody got a guess as to how many generals that he had? Four, four horns, four generals. It unfolds 200 years in the future just like it's given to Daniel. Um, look at verse 23 now. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise, and his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. And by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. So again, historians take this information and the much more detailed information we're going to see in chapter 11. And they're going to say, now the vision skips about 200 years or two centuries here. Um, the focus is now on one particular little horn. And scholars, every scholar I read, and I read a boatload, every single one agreed that this horn, this little horn that grew out of one of the four horns, is the second century B.C. ruler Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Okay. He fulfills this amazingly. And the description of his reign in Daniel is deeply troubling. Go back to verse 9 with me and look at the vision of how Antiochus, the little horn, is going to rule. It says, Out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. The focus is on Israel. Right? It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from that prince, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. The host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. It's going to throw truth to the ground. It's going to act and prosper. 
So the actual way that this played out in history um, is sobering in its terror um, and stunning in its correspondence to the prophecy. Much more about that in chapter 11. But listen to these descriptions of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign that's being prophesied here, the way he persecuted God's people. Antiochus was a tyrant who tried to unify his kingdom by forcing all his subjects to adopt Greek culture and religious practices. He banned circumcision, brought an end to sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem in 167 BC, then deliberately defiled it by burning pig's flesh on the Jewish altar and placing an object sacred to the Greek god Zeus in the Holy of Holies of that temple. He burned copies of the scriptures, slaughtered those who remained true to their faith in God, fitting perfectly the description of a stern-faced king who was completely wicked. Another writer says the observance of all Jewish ordinances, in particular those relating to Sabbath and circumcision, were prohibited on pain of death. In every town in Judea, sacrifice was to be offered to the heathen gods. Overseers were sent everywhere to see that the royal command was carried out. Where the people did not willingly comply, they were obliged to do so by force. Once a month, a check was made, and whoever was found with a scroll of the Torah or had had a child circumcised was put to death. In December of 167 B.C., a heathen altar was built in Jerusalem on the great altar of burnt offering, and that same month, the first heathen sacrifice was offered on it. That sacrifice was offered to Zeus, to whom the Jerusalem temple had been dedicated, and then this writer says, a little taste of Antichrist ahead of time. And that's kind of how Jesus uses this, too, as he quotes from this passage to point at a little horn, an Antichrist that's going to come and cause great suffering in the future. So verse 24 has something curious to say about this. It says, His power shall be great, but not by His own power. And it's not entirely clear if this is a reference to God's permissive power or Satan's enabling power, but either way, it brings to mind that there's a battle going on here behind the battle. This battle points to something greater than itself. Professor Tremper Longman says, a cosmic war stands behind this human conflict. In historical retrospect, we can assert with great certainty that the climactic battle described in this chapter as instigated by the small horn is the persecution of the Seleucid king Antiochus IV against observant Jewish people in the mid-2nd century B.C. However, the prophetic description of this future event makes it clear that more is going on behind the scenes. We await chapter 10 for an even more dramatic disclosure, and it's pretty awesome. But we already get an overture to the theme that a spiritual conflict stands behind the earthly one. It's not Antiochus versus the Maccabees, the guys who overthrew him alone. But it is a little horn who presumes to be a god who fights against the prince of princes and his starry hosts. A cosmic battle is ultimately at issue here. Now, it's easy to wonder why would, why so much space, why so much print on this guy Antiochus Epiphanes, whom, whom most of you have never heard of and most historians don't even mention, when Alexander the Great gets like one line. Why the focus here? And it's been said that it's because God's people had never faced this kind of systematic persecution until this time. A systematic program 
designed to eradicate completely every trace of Israel's faith. Um, The writer goes on and says that uh, the extreme emergency justified the detailed prediction. The day would come when Israel would need this revelation. That's the assumption of verse 26. Daniel's to close up the vision, to keep and preserve it, for it will have relevance for many days down the timeline. It is, not, is it not the kindness of the Lord to prepare his people for the extreme trouble they will have to endure? So in 26, the vision of the evenings and the mornings that's been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So this is going to transpire hundreds of years in the future. Um, the meaning of those 2,300 evenings is a bit confusing to try to fit it into Antiochus' reign and say it happened exactly on these days. But it does correspond with a period of intense persecution under his reign. But it's not clear if that's 2,300 days or 2,300 mornings and evenings, which is 1,150 days. So it's a little bit hard to, to fit in. But the focus, the main point is that The hope of God's people is that God has fixed a day for them when their suffering will cease and he will deliver his people. That's the point. That's their hope. And then in verse 27, as we saw, Daniel was overcome, lay sick for some days. Then he rose and went about the king's business, but was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So, Daniel ends, this chapter ends with Daniel confused, physically ill, I think over the prospect of this long suffering of God's people. For him, it's almost unbearable. So, in chapter 8, we have a vision of the future from Daniel's perspective. Two beasts, a ram and a goat, that are the empires that are going to follow. They're interpreted by an angel to mean Medo-Persia and Greece nations that are about to come to power. And out of this second empire, Greece, will come a little horn, a ruler who will horribly persecute God's people, and we know him from history to be Antiochus Epiphanes. And at this point, the question is, so what? If you love history, this is fascinating, um, but so what? What does this have to do with an American Christian 2,500 years later? I would say it's, it's intended to do the same two things it was intended to do for the people in Daniel's day. First, it's to help us keep our hope aligned right. Okay. See, as, as history unfolds in the visions of Daniel, one of the things you see is a consistent pattern. Um, the governments of men bend towards evil. All of them do in Daniel. One writer put it this way, the horror of human evil is especially concentrated in the state. Now, I suppose you could make a pretty good case that our American experiment of democracy and uh, founded on good Christian virtues and such is an exception to this. Um, But even our past is terribly checkered. Um, The Tulsa massacre we commemorated sadly this past weekend would be a, a case in point. So the point for us is the same. Our hope cannot lie in the politics of men. You know, you you lose an election and you're disappointed, right? You win an election and you're disappointed, 
right? This is politics today. Our hope lies elsewhere. It must lie elsewhere. Our hope must lie in the fullness of the coming of the kingdom of God, in his coming rescue of us from hardship and suffering. Now, in chapter 8, that rescue piece that gets very little press, but it's there on a couple of occasions. Look at verse 25. And he, that's Antiochus, that little horn, shall even rise up against the prince of princes. He'll oppose God. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Right? No human hand is going to end his reign. This is God's doing. And so in, I'm guessing around 164 B.C., a vastly outnumbered group of Maccabean fighters recaptured Jerusalem and um, worship in the temple was restored and Antiochus was defeated there. And the Jewish people celebrate to this day that, that victory in the festival of Hanukkah. If you have Jewish friends, this is what they're celebrating. But in that little phrase, chapter 8 tells God's people where their hope lies. Not in human hands. It's in God's. And, and that's, that's our lesson too. Our hope is not in human hands. It is in God's. We are to hope in Him, even in the face of great evil. He's our hope for deliverance. You know, when Jesus teaches about coming persecution in John 16, He adds this little thought. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And that's the purpose of this passage too. That's really the second takeaway from Daniel 8. We are to hope in God supremely. And we are to endure hardship and suffering even in the face of evil because of that hope. Um, Pastor Bob Deffenbaugh helped me. He said, prophecy is not given to men so they can understand all that God is doing and why. It is not given so that we may recognize the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes as it happens. Prophecy is given so that we will know that the future is in God's hands. He is in control, and his purposes and promises will prevail. It is given, he says, to inform us that there will be suffering and even the appearance of defeat. This is what seemed to happen at the first coming of our Lord when he was rejected by the Jews and crucified. It also seems to happen when the little horn opposes God and his people and appears to succeed for a season. Prophecy is not given to help us understand all that is happening at the time. But so we will know God is the one in control of what is happening at any and all times. Prophecy is given so that when we do not understand, we will turn to him who is all-knowing and all-powerful. So Daniel has seen a vision. He looks into the future, hundreds of years into the future, and sees long-suffering for God's people, and then rescue. We hear Paul say similar things to the early church. He talks about strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Okay. Through many tribulations. It's in our future as well. Jesus says of his disciples, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So there was a, an amazing Christian writer and thinker um, 
back in the days of the former Soviet Union, his name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he was imprisoned in a Siberian prison for many years. And at one point, he had become completely discouraged, decided to give up and die. And his plan, when they went out to work in the fields, was to simply stop working, lean on his shovel, and wait for the guards to come and beat him to death. And so when he stopped working, another prisoner near him reached over with his shovel and quickly drew a cross at Solzhenitsyn's feet and then erased it before a, God could see, a guard could see it. And Solzhenitsyn later said that his entire being was energized by that little reminder of the hope and courage we have in Christ. He found the strength to continue because a fellow believer cared enough to remind him of our hope. And so today... You're being reminded, our hope is in Christ, not in human hands. Christ, who did suffer for us to rescue us from our sins and who will rescue us from all suffering on that great day, the coming of his kingdom in its fullness, when he brings us into a glory that is so going to be worth it all. Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Oh, what a day that is going to be. Right? It's going to be worth it. Be steadfast, long-suffering, in hope of the return of your King. Let's pray together.